right, good morning. And thank you to Kim and Sophie for leading us in prayer and scripture reading. Um, so today we are going to be continuing our uh, sermon series that we've been working through, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount that, we, uh, that we've been calling Through the Looking Glass, um, the point of which is to highlight the countercultural nature of the kingdom of God as laid out by Jesus in his most famous sermon. Um, and at the outset of this series, uh, Pastor Paul read the entire sermon to us uh, because that's the way it would have been received by its original audience uh, as a single cohesive message. Um, but because of the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is so diverse in its range of topics and it's so full of little, uh, little nuggets and notable quotables um, in its written form, it's sometimes taken and read as more of a stream of consciousness than a single cohesive body of teaching. Um, it flows along rather quickly uh, from the Beatitudes where we've spent the last few weeks into um, kind of a head-spinning collection of brief teachings on anger and lust and oath-taking and divorce and loving your enemies and benevolence and how to pray and forgiveness and fasting and anxiety and being judgmental. And the whole thing ends with construction advice. It really runs the gamut of topics. Um, and so, because of this, people tend to break it into little pieces and treat them as standalone texts. But the Sermon on the Mount has a necessary flow of thought and an internal logic to it that helps us to better interpret the individual parts of it than we would be able to if they were indeed standalone blocks of teaching. So what's the big, the big picture? Um, all the pieces being taken together... What is Jesus communicating in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Jesus is preaching to his followers, as we've seen. People have followed him up to listen to him preach. These are people who consider themselves sold on his message, by and large. They're described as disciples. Um, and he seems to be, not explicitly, but implicitly asking him in this sermon, are you sure you know what you're getting yourself into? <laughs> and he says, let me explain it. Let me be as blunt and as plain as I can. And he explains that his kingdom is a parallel kingdom that exists alongside the rest of the kingdoms of this world, and that his kingdom is made visible in the world by the unusual way that its citizens look and act. And so, as we've seen, he begins with the Beatitudes, which describe the character qualities of a disciple. Right? They are a portrait of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And now here in our text today, Jesus reveals the purpose and the necessary effect of such citizens living in the world before going on to spend the rest of the sermon making concrete applications of these effects. Now, this, this particular passage, verses uh, 13 to 16, Pastor Paul preached a sermon uh, not too long ago, just in November, as part of the Foundation Sermon series uh, on these verses. And so I have uh, the challenge of preaching this short and familiar text um, in a way that doesn't overlap too much, anyway. Um, and I mentioned this at the outset because I want to acknowledge that I'm not preaching uh, this text in the way that I might normally. Um, rather, um, rather than camping out in these four verses 
and mining everything out of them. I'm actually going to focus more on the way they relate to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'll still do a summary of what the text itself actually means, uh, but I'll give it a much quicker treatment than I usually would. And so if you find yourself wanting a more in-depth treatment of these specific verses, do go into our sermon archive, uh, either on our website or through the app, and uh, look up the sermon uh, titled Cultural or Culturally Engaged from the Foundations series in November, uh, where Pastor Paul gave it a more, a more thorough exegetical treatment. But all right, for, for our purposes today, um, I began by raising the issue of logical flow uh, because that's how I want to look at this text. And it's immediately relevant because I believe that uh, these verses are occasioned in a very specific way by what came immediately before them. Uh, last week, Pastor Paul preached on verses 10 to 12, which are uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has just finished telling his followers that they will necessarily encounter persecution and trouble in the world. And what is a normal human reaction to tension and harassment? Um, you know, the, the familiar scene, right? Uh, a, a kid who is routinely beat up and has his lunch money stolen winds up eating his lunch alone in the washroom stalls, counting down the minutes until the bell rings and they will be under the safe supervision of teachers again, right? The easiest way to deal with a bully is to avoid them. Um, and what could be more natural, right? This is part of our, our programming to instinctively withdraw from sources of discomfort. You know, one of the earliest lessons that I can actually remember learning is that flame is hot, therefore don't stick your hand in it, right? <laughs> but Jesus is saying that what makes a person a disciple of his is that not only will you be necessarily persecuted and treated unfairly for his sake, but you will stand firm in the face of it and even rejoice, as, as Pastor Paul preached last week. And so... Um, he also laid out a couple of possible reasons why we as Christians might not feel this pinch. One of them was that it's possible that we have retreated from the world and shut ourselves off in behind tall walls to protect ourselves. But Jesus is saying here, retreat is not an option. And so in this text today, he says to his disciples, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are characterized by the fact that they press into a world that rejects them for its good. And that is the purpose of a disciple, which is my first point this morning. Um, we've spent the last three weeks hearing and being reminded about the fact that the disciples of Jesus are called blessed or blessed. Well, in God's economy, whenever he blesses anyone, whether an individual or a group, it is with the intention of that blessing spilling over for the benefit of others. Um, it's not a zero-sum game when God blesses people. Just think of the Abrahamic covenant, right? In uh, Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whomever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And in our text today, Jesus uses two very commonplace images to illustrate how this happens. Um, in verse 13, right off the hop, we see, he says, you are the salt of the earth. 
And then he begins in verse 14 with the second image, which is you are the light of the world. He's saying you are the salt and the light. He uses the emphatic construction here to drive the point home that Christians are necessarily these things. It's not a command to do something or to become something that they aren't already. Jesus is saying that these are the necessary and inescapable functions of true disciples. So let's, uh, let's start with the image of salt. Uh, and again, I'm going to give this a fairly quick treatment. But salt in the ancient Near East served at least two functions. Uh, it was both a seasoning and a preservative, right? Both functions work with the metaphor for the effects of Jesus' disciples of the world. So there's no need to demand that it's one or the other. Um, but let's begin with the taste function of salt. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of these verses in the message, leans toward the, the taste function, and he says, this is the way he, he paraphrases these verses, he says, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Is he properly applied in cooking, uh, salt is a flavor enhancer. Certainly you can use too much salt and you can just make everything taste like salt, but... Uh, properly used, <laughs> uh, salt is meant to bring out the best of whatever you're applying it to. And likewise, the role of Christians in the world is to highlight or to make visible all of the good in the world that points to its far greater creator. The second function of salt in the ancient Near East was as a preservative. So before the invention of refrigeration, Meat had to be heavily salted in order to keep it from rotting almost immediately. And in order to achieve this preservation, salt would have to be vigorously rubbed into the grain of the meat until it was deeply embedded. It was a really invasive process. Sorry. Likewise, in order to accomplish one of our primary purposes, which is to stave off or to slow moral decay, uh, Jesus' disciples need to be deeply embedded in culture. We cannot accomplish our task by separating ourselves from the world. Sorry, I'm going to throw my spot back here. There we go. However, we must also guard ourselves against losing our distinctive qualities. As Jesus warns in verse 13, he continues, but if salt loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt as we know it today is a very stable compound. Uh, but that's because we extract it in its purest forms and we refine it. Um, but salt in the ancient Near East was likely hand collected from deposits in salt marshes, uh, likely around the Dead Sea area. Um, and so it was likely seriously lacking in purity. And this meant that it had a shelf life, probably a fairly short one, um, because the, the pure salt would dilute over time uh, due to temperature fluctuations causing moisture. Um, and then, so you'd be left with a salt-looking compound that had none of the actual taste or preservation qualities of real salt. Um, and some extra-biblical sources suggest that this uh, compromised compound was then used uh, as a hardening agent for the flat roofs of the, that area of the world at that time 
because those were gathering places. They needed to be, remain firm. And uh, so in that way, salt that had lost its saltiness would be trampled underfoot. Um, and so the image of salt in Je- uh, that Jesus is, is using here drives home two functions of his disciples in the world. Um, but the second uh, metaphor, light, also expands on that. But, but what I find interesting about the second metaphor is that he uses it to drive home the necessity of these functions. In verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. So by its very nature, a town or a city on a hill cannot hide its light. It is incapable of doing so. It can be seen from far and wide whether they want to be seen or not, right? And so it is true of Jesus' disciples. If we have all the qualities by necessity, if we bear all of the characteristics of the portrait of a disciple as outlined in the Beatitudes, we will be highly visible in the world. But just in case we missed it, Jesus goes on in verse 15 and he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand And it gives light to everyone in the house. He's saying, even if you could conceivably hide your light, even if it were possible, why would you? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you light a lamp and put it under a bowl? It defies the very purpose of a lamp. So it is when we Christians attempt to blend into our worldly surroundings. We are defying our very purpose for existing. Think about it. We often quote uh, the first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism here. What is the chief end of man, or what is, the, what is the main purpose of humanity? And the answer there is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how exactly do we do this? Well, let's look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It is as we let our light freely shine for all to see that we bring glory to God in the world. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, this is your reason for being. Which brings me to my next point. For the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus outlines the kinds of good deeds and practical acts of obedience that accomplish this. And if we're paying attention at all, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to come to realize that he sets a crushingly high bar, right? And that is a problem for us to wrestle with. You know, you've probably heard Pastor Paul say at the beginning of his sermon before that we here at Grace Valley believe that Jesus is the answer to all of life's deepest questions. And therefore, we also believe that every sermon needs to have a problem that Jesus is the solution to. And so this is our problem today. Our problem is to figure out how we can possibly measure up to the impossibly high bar that the Sermon on the Mount sets and so fulfill our purpose as disciples of Jesus, being salt and light in the world. As I mentioned earlier, our text today, these four verses, are a logical inference from what preceded it. Jesus is saying, if you are my disciples, you will bear these characteristics. And if you bear those characteristics, you will necessarily have this effect on the world. Now, we're likely going to spend the next couple of months uh, slowly working through the rest of this sermon 
in which Jesus makes concrete application and explains how this plays out in different circumstances in life. But for today, I just want to make the observation that if you don't already feel intimidated by what we've learned so far, <laughs> you should. <laughs> and this is why Jesus immediately after this text reminds his followers that he hasn't come to get rid of the Old Testament at all. And in fact, he says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. We need to somehow attain a standard of righteousness even higher than the most stringent religious groups of that day, or we can't be considered true disciples or citizens of heaven. Surely this can't be what Jesus means here. Right? He must have misspoke. Well, let's investigate together. Uh, Grab your Bibles, if you would, um, and come with me on just a quick flyover of a few things that lie ahead in the sermon. Um, Chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is an Aramaic term of contempt, insulting someone on the basis of their lack of intelligence. Uh, So it's something like calling someone empty-headed. So he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Have you ever caught yourself uh, muttering something unflattering under your breath when someone cuts you off in traffic? Or is that just me? (laughs) Um, 528. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart, in his heart rather. A single passing lustful thought is enough to fall short of this standard. 544 says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then jump ahead to 48. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, be perfect, as God is perfect. This is a high bar. (laughs) You know, 615 talks about forgiveness. If you don't forgive others their sins, and your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. Have you ever struggled to forgive someone or wrestled with letting go of a grudge? Right? And of course, we'll we'll do one more. 721. It's a doozy. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Look, if what Jesus is doing is extrapolating what it means to be salt and light in the world, then it is an impossible task that has been set before us. How can any one of us ever hope to live up to this standard? Look one more time at 5 verse 20, where we started all this. It said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So think about what that read in Scripture, that they were so by the book in their devotion that they tithed even from the herbs that they grew in their gardens. They would clip out 10% to give to the Lord. Um, but even these moral giants were not doing enough. They could not do enough. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, for your grace and your mercy toward us. In your wisdom, you have determined to display your power and beauty in the weakness of your people. What a humbling and freeing reality. Father, you don't ask of us anything that you haven't first given to us. It's simply in our grateful receiving of your free gift of grace that we fulfill your purposes for us. Drive these truths deep into our hearts. Help them to be ever on our minds. All glory and praise be unto you forever and ever. Amen. All right. Traditionally, this is Q&A time. Oh, yeah. Sermon, breakout. Kids, you know what to do. So, if, uh, if any of you have a question and you're brave enough to just ask it here, then... Feel free to do so. If not, I think my number will be up on the screen shortly. And you can text it to me if you like. No? Anything? All right, I got one on the phone here. Um, the question is, how would or could we lose our saltiness in today's world? Good question. <laughs> no. Um, well, I, th I think, I think we, we do <laughs> at times, if we're honest in and of ourselves. Um, we do fail to maintain, certainly, our distinctiveness uh, in the world uh, at times, whether that's out of cowardice or lack of faith or um, whatever it happens to be, um, we can prove ourselves to be lacking. However, as we preached, if in fact we repent, uh, if in fact our hope is in Christ, um, he makes up our deficit. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering if the question is getting at, if we lose our saltiness, does that amount to losing our salvation. Um, I, my belief is that Christ, Christ has paid it all on my behalf. And so when I stumble and when I fall, that is not, um, that is not an a opportunity for me to lose my salvation. Um, so I may not be the saltiest salt in the world all the time, but he is on my behalf.
All right. If anyone has any further questions, oh wait, someone just came in here. Does Jesus teach about the forgiveness of sins in the Sermon on the Mount? He certainly does, and we will certainly be talking about that in the coming weeks. That's a doozy too. All right. Uh, again, if you have fur like further questions, if you're ruminating on this later, um, and something pops to mind, feel free to send it to me, and I'd be happy to try and get a decent answer to you at some point this week. Yeah.